When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Recently in my covenant group, we, bring, we came to this passage that we're looking at this morning a few weeks ago, and we brainstormed. Uh, together and ask questions about this passage. People verbalize their questions that they have about this entire subject of the Holy Spirit and tongues and everything that's in Acts chapter 2. And I wanted to give you those questions <clears throat> and put them before you. Who is the Holy Spirit? It's confusing to think of God as a spirit, yet there is this person called the Holy Spirit. When do you get baptized with the Holy Spirit? How do you know if you've been baptized? What does the Holy Spirit power look like? Why did he appear as tongues of fire? Where is the Holy Spirit in the life of people who walk away after professing to be believers? Why doesn't the Holy Spirit come to us with such obvious power as he did in the book of Acts? Why does tongues require an interpreter in Corinthians but not in the book of Acts? Can we blaspheme the Holy Spirit by not seeking to speak in tongues or endorsing it when it is done? Why do I get uncomfortable in worship services where the charismatic gifts like tongues are being practiced? Are tongue speakers more mature in their walk than me? What does it mean to grieve or quench the Holy Spirit? What's up with that? Am I doing that by not speaking in tongues or being more emotional in my worship? Can you be a Christian and not be baptized by the Holy Spirit? Is there a difference between being baptized and being indwelt and filled by the Holy Spirit? Are there different levels of indwelling or filling? Should we strive to speak in tongues or practice the more miraculous gifts? How do we explain that tongues later manifests itself with the Gentiles in Cornelius' house and with John's disciples in Ephesus in Acts 19? Doesn't this indicate that speaking in tongues as a sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the norm? What is tongues? Is it an actual human language or is it a heavenly language? Those are all great questions, aren't they? Let's give my small group a hand. That's, those are great questions. 17 questions. Settle in. Hope you brought your lunch. We're going to be here for about four hours. 
No, we're not going to answer them all this morning. I, unfortunately, we can't. I do think, you know, this is, a, I mean, kind of, you know, provoked maybe in the summertime, like we did with wonderful words, do a, a deeper dive next summer into the Holy Spirit that answers, make sure that all these kinds of questions are answered. But this morning, um, I think what we see in these questions is that they reveal that many of us have questions about the differences that we see in non-charismatic churches like ours and charismatic churches like the, those that may be right down the road from us. And, and we wonder about it. And unfortunately, I can't give you answers to all these questions this morning without you know, making you pass out from hunger. But the passage that we have before us does answer at least some of these questions. And I think by highlighting some of the truths and applications that are here, we'll have a, a few of these itches scratched this morning. And more importantly, we will better understand the pivotal nature of this passage within the scriptures. So for those of you who like to take notes by way of an outline, there's gonna be four headings this morning. There's the context of Pentecost, the significance of Pentecost, the misapplication of Pentecost, and then the application of Pentecost. So let's start, verse one, the context of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Let's stop right there. The word Pentecost means 50, 50, okay? And, and the reason why it's called Pentecost in 50 is that this day is 50 days later than the, a, the feast of the first fruits which happens on the Sunday after Passover. Remember Passover? Uh, back in you know, biblical history and even the life of Jesus, Passover is when they did the Last Supper. Passover is when Jesus was crucified. And as we know from the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the New Covenant is concealed, right? Everything within the Old Testament and the feast and the sacrifices points to Jesus. And that Passover lamb that was slain was fulfilled on that day when Jesus was crucified on the cross. And then, of course, he rose from the dead on Sunday, right? First day of the week, which was the day that they celebrated, the Jews celebrated the Feast of the First Fruits. And again, that makes sense because what do we find in 1 Corinthians 15? That Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. And so these feasts that were in the Old Testament concealed are now revealed under the New Covenant, and we understand what they were pointing to all along well, 50 days from resurrect, what we call Resurrection Sunday, the Feast of the First Fruits, 50 days from then, they would have another feast. And it was called the Feast of the Harvest or the Feast of Weeks, or perhaps even called the Feast of the Latter First Fruits. Because again, the Holy Spirit is that first fruit deposit that we have of our eternal inheritance, right? It was a major holiday and celebration for the Israelites. Not only did they celebrate it because of the, you know, the agricultural harvest and the celebration of the, of the harvest that was taking place, in their history, they saw this day as the day when God descended upon Mount Sinai and gave them the law. Fifty days after crossing the Red Sea, they come to Mount Sinai, and here is God descending 
talking to Moses, giving him the law. And so this is a major day. The city is filled with Jews who are on pilgrimage from all the nations around the Mediterranean world and the Middle Eastern world where they had been dispersed. They would normally come back for Passover. And if they made the trip that far, they would go ahead and stay the 50 days and visit and and interact. And then after this Pentecost holiday and festival, they would then depart and go home. And so the city is filled with all of these different people groups. They're all Jews, but they are scattered around the world. And we see the list of peoples and nations represented in verses 9 to 11. And the Holy Spirit at this day, at Pentecost, descends upon the apostles, the 120 disciples, and it very quickly becomes a major event which thousands of people witness. Verse 2 says, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Like, it's a simile. It, It wasn't a rushing wind. It wasn't the wind. It just sounded like the wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. We don't know if this house was the upper room, which we saw last week at the end of chapter one, or it's very legitimate to say the house here is the temple of God. Remember, uh, Luke tells us that the disciples were gathering every day in the temple, singing and praising and honoring God. It can refer to the temple or to maybe one of the side rooms of the temple. These are all legitimate understandings of the underlying word. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Again, not literal tongues of fire, but something that resembled and looked like tongues of fire over each and every person. So let's catch what's happening here on the day that the Jews celebrated the encounter with God where he gives them the law at Sinai. We once again have God making a miraculous, remarkable entrance into historical time and space. And the parallels between these two events that have been separated by, mm, what, 1,400 years are are similar. If you listen to the description of of that day in Sinai in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, this is what you read. You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. So what was that like at Mount Sinai? The sounds of wind and fire and then the voice of God which, which struck awe and terror in the hearts of the people. They heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. This was what happened at Sinai, and now you have something similar happening in Jerusalem on Pentecost. As the Holy Spirit descends, there's the sound of the wind, there's little flames that look like flames of fire, tongues of fire on their heads. And then the Bible says in verses 4 and verses 6 and 7 that there was this miraculous phenomenon that all the disciples spoke in tongues. And later in verse 6 and 7, using the language of all of those different people that were there. That word tongue is the Greek word glossa. Glossalia, and it literally means a body of words and systems that make up a distinctive language. We might say it, it's the glossa is the words and the rules of grammar 
that make a human language possible. That's what the word glossa means. And then in verse six and seven, that word language is the Greek word dialectos, from which we get our word dialect. You see, not only were they speaking in human languages, they were speaking in the exact dialects of the people who were visiting from all of these different regions of the world. And so here is this miraculous opportunity for God to be praised to all of these people through these disciples. Now, clearly, the gift of tongues at Pentecost, as you know, it's said, it was not the result of, you know, dr- it wasn't drunken babbling. It wasn't gibberish. It wasn't incoherent, you know, sounds, except to those who didn't know the foreign language. That's why some were accusing them of a baby being drunk with wine is because they didn't speak Parthian. And so it sounded kind of, you know, what are they doing? What's going on with these guys? Are they drunk? But to the Parthians, they knew exactly what was being said. And you can work your way through the list. No, instead, what this was, in fact, one of the questions, what was tongues on that day? It was a supernatural ability to praise and proclaim the greatness of God to people in their natural human language and dialect. It was a manifestation of the Holy Spirit that fell on all of these early believers. All of them speaking languages that they could not naturally speak. Phenomenal. What a miracle happens on this day. And the response what does this mean? What does this mean? The people who are hearing it, what does it mean? This brings us to the significance of Pentecost. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. May I suggest, first of all, that what this means, at the very least, we shouldn't overlook this, at the most basic level, Pentecost was Like all examples of God's grace and power, Pentecost was an invitation to those who reject Christ to receive him as Lord and Savior. Some, maybe even here this morning, you have a reputation for being a scoffer of Christ and the power of God, the miraculous grace and presence of God. This passage is exhorting you, encouraging you, don't go down the road of the scoffers at Pentecost who are faced with this very obvious, miraculous power of God, and their response is to chalk it up to them being drunk. They would willfully overlook the presence and power of God rather than entertain the idea that there is a God in this universe who is more powerful than all of us, who has a message to us, and that message starts with He is God, we are not, we are sinners. We need to be rescued and redeemed from our sin so we can have a relationship with our Creator. And rather than accept that fundamental message we will come up with stupid excuses like, oh, well, they must be drunk or similar things to explain away. Why scoff when your friend and your family member is testifying to you of what God is doing in their life? Why not have the intellectual and personal objectivity to entertain the idea that your loved one and your friend and your family member may be onto something and you are the one who's missing out? 
Don't be a scoffer. Allow the power of God in your loved one's life to be a testimony to you that there is something better for you if you will simply embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior. At the very least, Pentecost reminds us of this need that we all have. There's something even more here that is especially pertinent to those of us who are followers of Christ. And I don't want you to miss this significance of Pentecost in these verses. Pentecost signifies for God's people the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant and the dawning of a new age. The coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is the fulfillment of historical redemptive promises, salvation appointments that are climactic moments that were promised by God in the Old Testament prophets through the ministry of John the Baptist, even through Jesus himself. We should not miss what's going on here in Acts 2 in light of all of Scripture. We interpret Scripture with Scripture, church, not according to our whims or our own personal opinions. And so let's go to Scripture. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, when God promises to the Israelites that when he brings about a new covenant, and a new relationship with them, it will be different from what they experienced in the Old Covenant. You see, in the Old Covenant, the Spirit of God descended upon maybe a a primary leader of the people of God. Maybe it was like a judge, like Samson, or a prophet like Isaiah, or a king like David. And the Holy Spirit would descend upon that individual, not all of the people, but that leader, that mediator, that intermediary type of person. And, And the people were either blessed or sometimes judged by God relative to what was happening in the life of that person, that leader. That's why in Jeremiah 31, when when God says, I'm going to make a a new covenant with you in the future where I put my law and my spirit in your hearts, that starts out by saying, no longer will the children endure the judgment of God for sins that were their father's sins. Every person will stand on their own two feet before God. Why? Because under the new covenant, every person who is a part of the people of God will be given the Holy Spirit. So in Isaiah, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, my blessing on your descendants. In the book of Ezekiel, again, looking to the new covenant, God says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart and I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. The promise of God in the old covenant concerning the nature of the new covenant was this pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all of his people. John the Baptist at his ministry, when the Jews come to him and say, are you the promised Messiah? His response in verse 16 says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And this very point is what Jesus mentions in Acts chapter 1. 
before the ascension, when he tells the apostles to return to Jerusalem and wait, and what does he say? John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Church, when we come to this idea of Pentecost and speaking in tongues and all of this, we have to think about it through the lens of the entirety of Scripture and what it signified as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Luke is stressing Pentecost as the fulfillment of the prophetic promises as a visible, miraculous proof that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that he is no pretender. And this is exactly what Peter will begin to preach in verse 14, which we're going to look at next week. It's huge. It's very important that we understand this. Tongues in this passage was, were discernible human languages. When you think about tongues in all the rest of the Bible, we have to look at those other references at tongues in light of Acts chapter 2 because Acts chapter 2 is the clearest description of what glossolia is. In fact, it's the only description that we really have in the New Testament of what speaking in tongues looks like. Only one. <clears throat> and so that, these verses should influence our understanding of the other usages. What's clear in these verses is that the purpose of the gift of tongues here as the Spirit is poured out was not for self-edification of those disciples. The purpose here in Acts chapter 2 is to set the stage for the preaching of the gospel. That's what's going on here. The Holy Spirit comes down on these 120 Jewish disciples, and through miraculous events, he's now signifying something that's important, that the new covenant is for the Jewish people, right? But you know, this isn't the last time it happens in the book of Acts. All total, there's four events like this, similar to this. Four times, the Holy Spirit is poured out, and the people begin to speak in tongues. Four times. Acts chapter 2, what we saw right here. The Jews, Jewish disciples. In a few chapters, Acts chapter 8, it's going to happen again. But this time, it's to the Samaritans. The Samaritans hear the gospel and they believe. And what happens? The Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And they, are, they begin to speak in tongues. And this is absolutely shocking to the Jews. You mean the Samaritans are in the new covenant? The despised Samaritan half-breeds who we've been at conflict with for hundreds of years? They're part of the new covenant? Yep, sure are. And by the way, at that moment in time, <coughs> excuse me, the Samaritans learned that they had to stop feuding with the Jews and especially the apostles in Jerusalem, but they were their spiritual heads. It was in a significant moment. And then you go forward a couple more chapters and you see it happen again. But this time, it's at a Gentile's house. A bunch of Gentiles are gathered together and they believe and the Spirit is poured out and they speak in tongues. And the final example in the book of Acts where this happens, where tongues is mentioned and, and it occurs is in Acts chapter 19 when Paul comes to the area of Ephesus, he finds a group of men and women who were Jew and Gentile who had 
come to Israel. They were worshipers of God. They'd come to Israel. They had heard the ministry and preaching of John the Baptist. They're baptized by John the Baptist. They're believing and looking forward to Christ as the Messiah, and they don't know what all has happened over the last several years. And Paul brings them up to speed, and they embrace that Christ as their Lord, and the Spirit is poured out, and they speak in tongues. That's it. Do you notice something about each of those situations? It's all a different group of people. First it was the Jews, then the Samaritans, then the Gentiles, and then that, you know, group that's really impossible for there ever to be again because John the Baptist hasn't been around, right? It's vital that we interpret and apply this passage in Acts chapter 2 and all the passages in Acts according to the original purpose. And what's happening here is that Luke is connecting the dots between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and how Pentecost is the pivotal transition between the two. Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on these disciples is proof, prima facie proof, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's not a pretender. It's prima facie proof that the Samaritans are part of God's redemptive plan, that the Gentiles are part of God's redemptive plan, that the, you know, the one-off group of Jews, and they're part of the God's redemptive plan, that we all have a place within the new covenant. And the evidence that this is the case, regardless of our sex or our ethnicity or our religious background, the evidence of that is that the Holy Spirit is poured out on all the different kinds of groups that envelop every one of us here this morning. And we all find ourselves in the new covenant just as those men and women did. To ignore what Luke is doing here will lead to some really bad misapplications of Pentecost. So let's, let's actually go there right now, okay? Let's go there. When it comes to Pentecost, uh, charismatic churches, non-charismatic churches alike, right? We are a non-charismatic church. Um, we have brothers and sisters that we love and appreciate who are charismatic. And when it comes to pe- pe- uh, Pentecost, it is interesting how charismatics and non-charismatics alike err and how they apply this text as it relates to the subject of the, of the gift of tongues applying to us and how it should be practiced today by individual Christians. Let's start with the charismatic error. The most common charismatic error is something that's known as a second blessing theology. Second blessing theology essentially says that we are just like those 120 disciples. We may believe in Jesus and we may even have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, but what we need to do is like those early disciples who went back to Jerusalem, we need to wait and we need to pray. And we need to beg God, beseech God to pour out the Holy Spirit upon us. And when he does answer that prayer, we will all speak in tongues. So the second blessing theology is saying we need another baptism of the Holy Spirit. And associated with that baptism of the Holy Spirit, we will speak in tongues. Pat Robertson, how many of you know who Pat Robertson is, right? Pat Robertson, been on television forever and ever, wrote a book back in... I think it was the 70s or 80s, called My Prayer for You. And he says, I believe, although there is no specific teaching on this, 
Think about that for a second. I believe, although there is no specific teaching on this, I'm going to keep going, that it would be considered the norm and the New Testament experience for the candidate for baptism of the Holy Spirit to speak another language when this blessing come upon him, came upon him, right? So what's happening here, and, and the error here, is that charismatics err in making something the expected norm when it isn't the norm for most of the converts in the book of Acts. Here early in the day, this 120 people are baptized with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's outpoured upon them, they speak in tongues. A little later in the day, 3,000 people are going to believe in Jesus. They too receive the Holy Spirit, no record of them speaking in tongues. A couple of chapters later, you come up to 5,000 Jews who believe and come into the family of God. They too receive the Holy Spirit, yet there's no record of them speaking in tongues. What's happened here is that the charismatics have taken something that is descriptive and they've made it prescriptive and they've done it in a selective manner. What do I mean by that? Well, in other words, <clears throat> if we're going to go, excuse me, go to Acts chapter 2 and say that, you know, what happened in Acts chapter 2 is what's supposed to happen to us when we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Why do they stop with speaking in tongues? What about the little t- flames of fire upon people's heads? What about the sound of rushing wind? All three phenomenon happen with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Why is that not considered the norm if this is what's going on? Why the focus just on speaking in tongues? No. What we need to understand here, and what the charismatics fail to understand, is that Luke is not providing us with a paradigm for the personal experience of the Holy Spirit in our lives that is supposed to be the norm for every individual. What Luke is doing and his emphasis in Acts chapter 2 is pointing to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and how all of this finds its culmination in Jesus as Messiah, who's now ascended, sitting on the right hand of the throne of God, and that he is the only hope of salvation, and he's available to Jew and Gentile alike. That's what he's saying in Acts. Acts chapter 2. You have to look at the entirety of the chapter, not just the first 13 verses. And here's, that's his emphasis here. And this, when you understand it like this, it helps us to understand and explains why the thousands of people who come to Christ, the Jews, in chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5, why they do not speak in tongues. It helps us to understand why after Cornelius and the Gentiles, and you see the thousands of people who come to Christ during the ministries of Paul and Barnabas and that that whole missionary effort, yet you don't see any record of them speaking in tongues. Why? Okay, you have to ask yourself why there. But this approach explains it. This helps us to realize that what's happening with tongues and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is God is fulfilling that historical redemptive appointment and promise that he made in the Old Testament. That the new covenant is for the Jew, and the new covenant is for the Gentile, and the new covenant is for the Samaritans, and the new covenant is for the men and the women, and as Peter will say, it's even for your little children in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39. So we make a mistake 
when we make Acts chapter two the paradigm for what is supposed to happen to us as individuals. That's not the purpose, and we have to honor the purpose of the author. It's illegitimate to draw applications and interpretations that the author of the word did not intend. We need to stay close to what he intended. And by the way, this absolutely helps us understand what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians to the Corinthians, right? All the issues that they had. What does he tell them? He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right? Verse 13, for in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. In fact, in Romans chapter eight, he makes it very clear that if we do not have the spirit, if we have not been, to use the language of the character, if we have not been baptized with the spirit, then we don't belong to Christ. Because if we don't have the spirit, we don't have Christ. Okay. And in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, we've all been baptized in one spirit, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, go on down the list. We've all been made to drink of one spirit. And then notice what he asks. He says, in light of this and the Holy Spirit that we have and the gifts that he gives, are all of us apostles? Answer the question, church, are all of us apostles? No, in fact, none of us are apostles anymore, right? Are all prophets? Come on, are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Okay. If we are to be filled with the Spirit and baptized in the Spirit, how can speaking in tongues be the evidence and sign of being baptized in the Spirit when Paul says, no, we're not all supposed to speak in tongues? <laughs> you know, I, I'm not the smartest guy in the room and the sharpest tool in the shed, but I got enough logic to know those two things don't match up. Right? Amen? Amen. Okay. How about the non-charismatics? That's some of us in here. In fact, probably most of us in here. Um, some of us in here maybe even believe that tongues have ceased. It's what we call cessationism, right? The cessationist will come to Acts chapter 2 and say something basically along these lines. You see, the tongues were needed by the apostles. The gift of tongues was needed by the apostles as they spread the gospel around the world, and they needed to be able to evangelize and preach and proclaim the gospel in the language of the people. So the gift was a very practical gift that the apostles had. It and the other miraculous gifts like healing. I mean, we're going to see where the shadow of Peter falls on people and they're healed, right? They raise people from the dead. All of these miraculous gifts, they were needed by the apostles to attest to their authority and to their unique ministry and role in the founding of the church. But when they passed away, this need was no longer there. And so the gifts have also ceased and passed away. That's the line of argument. And certainly, there's legitimacy there. It's not all in error. Tongues and the miraculous gifts were a means by which the apostles were able to attest to their authority, to expand the kingdom and fulfill their role as what we might call missionaries spreading the gospel around the world. Certainly, that is legitimate. But we also have to admit that Gifts weren't limited to the apostles. We see this in the New Testament. It wasn't just the apostles. 
And so the cessationist is misapplying this text really in two very obvious ways. First of all, the text doesn't say that tongues in this passage was evangelistic in nature. This is one of the, the huge ironies to me who was, who was raised in a cessationist background and churches that, like ours, that love the Word of God, elevate the Word of God, look to the Word of God for all of the sufficiency of life and practice and doctrine, and yet will say, based upon Acts chapter 2 and the Word of God, that tongues has ceased, and, and, or that tongues was evangelistic in nature in Acts chapter two. And that's not what Acts chapter two says at all, does it? What were the disciples saying? They were praising the greatness and the goodness of God. In other languages, which drew the curiosity of other people who spoke those languages, This text literally says, in other languages and dialects, they were praising and testifying to the goodness of God. And it drew the attention of others. And from that, in a a sense, tongues in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, is a form of pre-evangelism. It's it's creating a desire to hear more, to understand more. Where does the evangelism come into play? Where does the proclamation of the gospel happen? It begins in verse 14 when Peter stands up and begins to preach his sermon. And through that sermon, people are convicted and struck in their heart and they believe. And and what does he preach in? Probably Aramaic. That was the language of the, the common language of the Jewish people. And so the miracle of tongues they're praising and proclaiming the greatness of God. And people are going, hey, what's going on over here? And this leads to them hearing the preaching of the gospel. It wasn't the tongues themselves that was evangelistic, at least from what the text says. The second thing they forget is that the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is tied to the entirety of the new age being inaugurated, not just the very beginning. You see, the Holy Spirit and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit with the new covenant is to characterize the entire age of the new covenant, not just the beginning of it. And so when we look at the scriptures outside of the gift of apostleship, there is nothing in the Bible that constrains the Holy Spirit from giving any of the spiritual gifts out to anybody at any time as he deems fit. And the only reason why apostleship is off the table is because to be an apostle, what was the requirement? You had to have witnessed the entire ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And I don't think any of us in here, while some of you are getting a little old, match that criteria, right? So this is the only gift that is off the table for the Holy Spirit. Nowhere, again, let the text speak for itself. Nowhere does the Bible say that these gifts are off the table. So Charismatics and non-charismatics alike, we, we misapply Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost and speaking in tongues. So how about by way of application? Let's finish it up here. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? Church, question for you this morning. Has our need 
to magnify God and powerfully testify to his goodness to unbelievers? Has our need to proclaim God's goodness to unbelievers decreased since Pentecost? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Has our need for the Holy Spirit's presence and power in our lives, in our church, has it decreased since Pentecost? No. Has or do we have the same calling as the disciples of Acts chapter 1 to proclaim the good news in our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth? Do we have that same calling? Yes. Do we need the power of the Holy Spirit to carry out that ministry and calling? Yes. We have at, at least to the same degree that the early church needed the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit, if not more. So let's realize that in the wisdom of and the sovereignty of Christ, it isn't his physical presence, but the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives that is to characterize his current messianic reign and this new age in which we live. So just don't let the abuses of some within Christianity on both ends of the spectrum encourage us to react and let the pendulum go in the opposite direction. That, that happens. I have to confess, it's happened in my own life where I'm so dedicated to being true to the word and the, the doctrine and the, the theological truths of the scripture and will pursue accuracy in these things, but ask myself, where is the same pursuit for the filling of the Holy Spirit in my life? And I will tell you to my own detriment and chagrin that it's not always the same. And because of that, I struggle when I don't need to struggle. My ministry is not as powerful as I would want it to be because of the pendulum swinging. Have you let the pendulum swing in your own life because of abuses that you see in Christianity? And listen, there's some whacked out abuses out there, man. I mean, there's people going to meetings and getting hit upside the head by the two by four, it seems like, being slain in the spirit. I mean, come on. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff out there nowadays. And it's like, whoa, what's going on? But we, we should listen to what D.A. Carson says. Although I think it extremely dangerous to pursue a second blessing attested by tongues, I think it no less dangerous not to pant after God at all and to be satisfied with a merely creedal Christianity that is kosher but complacent, orthodox but ossified, sound but soundly asleep. Boy, I was convicted when I read that. So we don't need a, a second blessing of the Holy Spirit as it's described by some of our charismatic friends. But at the same time, we shouldn't see our baptism in the Spirit at salvation as being a one and done deal. That's all we need and that's it. Moving on. Next. While associating tongues as the evidence of the second blessing is wrong, it's equally wrong and equally dangerous to underemphasize our continual dependence and need for the Holy Spirit to be in our lives. 
Church, in Ephesians chapter 5, we are exhorted and commanded to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why would God exhort us? Why would the Scriptures exhort us to be filled with the Spirit if there was not a corresponding possibility that we could dangerously and functionally become empty of His controlling, powerful presence? Why would we be warned to not quench the Holy Spirit if it were not a possibility for us to functionally quench the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church? we got to recognize this. So a proper understanding of Pentecost, it helps us to see that we need neither an overemphasized, manufactured second blessing theology nor do we need an underemphasized, sterile theology of the Holy Spirit which ignores and functionally quenches His presence and His work in our lives and in our church. Both ends of the continuum are dangerous for us to reside. Instead, we need a balanced theology of the Holy Spirit which does seek a second blessing and a third blessing and a fourth blessing, and a fifth blessing, and a tenth blessing, and a hundredth blessing, and a thousandth blessing of the Holy Spirit, where our hearts are so touched by our sovereign Lord, where we are so filled with the Holy Spirit that our lives are characterized by a gospel-centered joy, a Christ-honoring generosity, an others-focused service, and a kingdom-impacting power that enables us to communicate the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ that brings about conviction and salvation in the lives of those who we love. Oh, how I need that in my life. And how I repent of the pendulum swing and ask God to bring me back to where I need to be and to bring our church back to where we need to be. Because has there ever been a time in the 13 years I've been here as pastor where we need the presence and the power of Holy Spirit at work in our church? It's now. Amen, church? Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, would you make this true for us? Father, we come to you. I know I, I, I come to you confessing my dependence upon self instead of the pursuit and submission to the Holy Spirit. That in my zeal to love your word and to be on point with the truth of your word, I've overlooked the one who illuminates the word, who applies it to my own heart. So God, would you, would you fill us with your spirit again? And again and again and again and more and more and more. So that those who don't know Christ, they hear us singing in church and in our job. And they watch how we rejoice. And the joy that comes out of our hearts and our eyes, our mouths, our face, the countenance. It's, it's intriguing to them because it's something that they do not have and that we have because we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Would you make us those kinds of winsome, spirit-filled disciples so that the people that you have ordained before the foundations of the world experience the goodness of your gospel through us. 
I ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.